Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Jennifer Lawrence, who is the founder and developer of both the Museum of Distilled Spirits in Las Vegas, and also the New England Food and Beverage Museum. So welcome, Jennifer. Thank you. And we're happy to have you here. So let us know a little bit about these two museums. They seem like they're in very diverse places and they seem very different. The New England Food and Beverage Museum is in a much earlier phase. So I'll speak to that first. Um, Like the Southern Food and Beverage Museum, we're looking for what connects all people. And food and beverage are two of the few things that all people have in common, the commonality. So it's a uniter. And um, the Museum of Distilled Spirits is further along in its evolution in Las Vegas. And so it actually has a location. The New England Food and Beverage Museum, I'm currently in conversations with five of the six New England states, several towns and villages, determining where the best location for it is. All of the states have something that would be a contributing factor. So we're thinking of perhaps evolving it, not unlike the way the food the Southern Food and Beverage Museum started as a pop-up and running it seasonally because all of New England has a summer season, uh, especially on the coast and especially New England is known well for its seafood. So we're trying to determine where the best coastal location for the museum would be. And are you thinking of pop-ups in different season and different years to see how it works best? Right. So before you go and build a permanent structure um, in a place where there are six New England states, trying to determine where the best year-round demographics would be. But it would start with the summer and start data collecting. I mean, there are many factors. How is it to work in that state? There are considerations like um, Native American considerations in many places, integrating them. Um, You know, so, and where are people already going year-round? Better to put it in a big city like Boston, where it already has a huge appreciation for culture, or in a smaller place like perhaps Mystic, Connecticut, where they have year-round visitation because of Mystic Seaport, um, but it's, it's so it's not quite so summer-oriented like uh, like maybe Portland, Maine, which has a great thriving community in the summer. I'm not sure how in the dead of winter if a lot of people are going to visit there. And of course, to be sustainable, you need an audience. Right, right. You definitely do. And then I can imagine that your liquor laws are going to be different from state to state. So if you're dealing with whatever spirits or cocktails or other kinds of alcohol might be something that you want to feature, that's going to be an issue also. I don't know how 
it's that museum is going to be a nonprofit, and I don't know how integration of alcohol into nonprofits is going to vary from state to state as far as tasting goes. You cannot tell the story of New England without um, without the stories of rum and whiskey. You can't even tell the story of America without <laughs> the stories of rum and whiskey. The Boston Tea Party came about because all the colonists were at a tavern, they got all liquored up, and they thought, we'll get back at England by dumping the tea in the harbor. That was not a sober exercise. And, and Rhode Island was the basis for the United States in the rum trade. Um, they would go from, they would take finished rum product to Africa and trade it for slaves, and then they'd go to the, take the slaves to the Caribbean to work in the sugarcane fields, and then they would send the, mat, the molasses to um, Rhode Island to be turned into rum. The triangle. The triangle. Yes. Mm -hmm. The triangle trade. So that, is, that was the triangle. And so you cannot tell the story without the integration of alcohol into the museum. So certainly it plays into the final location and but it's still this is still all being discussed right you're still in the early stage very early stages on that one but the museum of distilled spirits is further further along it's already a nevada corporation and we're just in the process of develop developing that now so tell me how this idea came to be Right. So I um, and was at Harvard getting a master's degree in museum studies. And the first paper that I had was asked to write was my dream museum that exists nowhere on earth. And the Museum of Distilled Spirits was it for me. The head of the department read it and thought it was a great idea because it doesn't exist anywhere on earth. There are single profile museums in lots of places around the world, but there's no, there currently exists no museum which um, takes all six distilled spirits as defined by the TTB, which is the Alcohol and Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau of the government. By the way, those are brandy, gin, rum, tequila, vodka, and whiskey. There's no museum that, take, that addresses all six as the content in the museum. So I, when it came time to do my thesis, that was my first paper, when it came time to do my thesis, actually two of the four ideas I submitted to the department were Museum of Distilled Spirits and the New England Food and Beverage Museum. So the Museum of Distilled Spirits was the one that was chosen, but I didn't forget that there should be a New England Food and Beverage Museum as there is a Southern Food and Beverage Museum and a Pacific Food and Beverage Museum. I did my internship here, my Harvard-required internship here at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. So I came to learn an infrastructure and an approach and so when you were at, at school learning about this, um, did you feel that 
a food museum or a food and drink museum was something special or unusual, or was it something that was much more embraced than you might think? Because obviously you have art museums and you have natural history museums and museums that are, are fairly common in almost everywhere, but I don't know that you can find a food and drink museum everywhere. Well, that's a real rise in the American culture right now is the innovation of food and beverage museums, especially with the millennial generation now the predominant living generation in this country who are much more interested in experiences than they are collections. So uh, experience, the ultimate experience is multi-sensory, which includes, you know, eating and drinking. They're very interested in the storytelling aspect. Where did this come from? They're paying more attention to what they're putting in their bodies, and they want to know the story of how it got there. So it only makes sense to address that content in a museum. And so was it something that was actually taught as something to go forward with, or is it more that in your own research you came to these conclusions? Well, I think I am always thinking of things that don't exist. <laughs> <laughs> and how can I work on creating things that don't exist? And obviously, you've, you figured that out too. <laughs> <laughs> because we're sitting here in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum and the National Food and Beverage Foundation as an umbrella for these kinds of museums that are evolving throughout the country. So it was a, a process that evolved over reading about it, but I mean the original, and research, but the original idea came from being in a museum program and, um, and noticing there's no, and having been to a tequila museum in Tequila, Mexico, and knowing of other museums throughout the United States, primarily that address whiskey or rye, but there wasn't a museum that had everything in one, one place. So how do you relate the various spirits together in your concept? Well, you know, alcohol was discovered when fruit fell from trees, rotted on the ground, fermented, and early humans noticed that there were tipsy birds and tipsy animals. So for thousands of years, various forms of fermented botanicals um, were used in all manner of application as medicine, both ingested and topical. So brandy was the first distilled spirit, which makes sense because brandy is distilled wine, a fermented alcoholic beverage. And then in the 7th and 8th centuries, Arab alchemists used the process of distillation to separate alcohol from water using heat through evaporation and condensation. And those little vapors were known as the spirits of the botanicals, and that's distilled spirits. Well, and there's that interesting theory that one of the ways that we, as humans, developed and why we have been successful all over the world, as so many animals have only certain geographic regions in which they can live, 
we've been successful because our bodies developed the ability to um, metabolize alcohol. And that meant that you could eat foods for longer as they went through that entire fermentation process. You could continue to eat those foods and it made us more adaptable. Well, alcohol's actually saved our lives because there are many times throughout history when when it was safer to drink alcohol than it was to drink the water. There's uh, even Benjamin Franklin has a brandy milk punch recipe because milk wasn't pasteurized. So by, you know, putting brandy in it and it would make it safe to drink. Um, though the entire gin craze was a result of, you know, water in, in England not being safe to drink and distilling, and distilling that was just one of the reasons that came out of... Um, came out of it for alcohol. So throughout time, uh, and these are just two examples that there are hundreds of alcohol as, as the main source of liquid. So it becomes your savior and your killer at the same time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, but you know, like an American colonist gave children fermented apple juice. So, I mean, even little kids were drinking alcohol from the time they were born. Um, so it, it, it depends on what your, how you were biologically set up. Are you just going to drink it to live and have a safe drink? Or are you going to have problems with alcoholism, which, of course, have happened from the beginning of time? Right, right. There's certainly not new um, at all. <laughs> so let's go back to how you, you're planning to, to create this experience. What, what is it that you think that we would enjoy there and learn? Well, um, the, the, on the, basically both, both museums would have a similar approach, but for the Museum of Distilled Spirits, the mission would be to welcome the community that has an appreciation for brandy, gin, rum, tequila, vodka, and whiskey to share their stories while inspiring awareness of the significance of distilled spirits to America's cultural heritage in a celebratory, innovative, multi-sensory experience. So basically, it's going to be taking technology um, and using live theater, trained staff, to facilitate the experience between the technology and people, all the while having um, something to drink. And so are you expecting that people are going to be wearing virtual reality glasses or no, anything like it that? No, it would be the entire experience would take place in, without... In a room. In, a, in rooms. So it wouldn't be... Um, it wouldn't be, no, they don't need to bring technology or wear technology. So it's more like the holodeck on the, uh, on the Enterprise. Exactly. <laughs> A Star Trek holodeck. Yes. So, it, you know, it would, it would include an Ask the Farmer experience, which has come out of one of my classes was um, theater and museums, which took place at the National Museum of American History in Washington, D.C. And theater and museums came about when Julia Child donated her kitchen to that museum. And they started an Ask the Farmer experience. And I, the, 
being able to have an actor who's trained as though they are that person, that farmer, they know everything about it. You can ask them everything from the from the plant from the time whatever it is is planted, the botanical is planted until it's harvested. And not just about the process, but about their lives and their families and their children and how do you have your days and what did you aspire to do or what are you doing now? I mean this entire experience with a human being rather than just having an experience with technology. And so you're expecting that there'll be a backstory for this person so that they Completely, are an actor, as all actors create backstories. Mm-hmm. My undergraduate degree is in drama, so um, writing backstories is a huge part of that. Um, so that would definitely be part of the process. That's very interesting because a, a lot of, of those living history museums have similar types of um, actors who are sort of a docent actor um, guiding you through the experience of you know churning butter or whatever it is they're doing. And they usually can say, oh, yes, I have five children, and we have to uh, do this to keep the butter safe or you know, whatever the story is. I'm just kind of talking now, but um, it would be a variation of that. A variation of that. And they would be dressed appropriately. To whatever, whatever they, uh, whatever botanical, whatever, wherever their crop is being grown, you know, like, you know, corn in Kentucky or agave in Mexico or potatoes in Russia, wherever, you know, wherever they are, it would, they would be that. So you're truly having an immersive experience. You feel that you really are learning about this in a way that it has not been approached before. But instead of being outside the way you would be at, say, Williamsburg or something like that, you're going to be in a room that is somehow enhanced through virtual reality. Exactly. Okay. But it, but it's facilitated. It's entirely facilitated, entirely curated. There's no handing somebody a map and having them go sort this out on their own. It is shown in museum studies that facilitated experiences are more meaningful to the visitor. And so how do you deal with the question of those people who kind of want to linger. I went to a museum, I won't name it, but they kind of pushed you through. And it was totally facilitated and curated as you went through. But if you wanted to linger over something, and there there were things that they let you touch, I mean, they weren't actual artifacts. They were reproductions and things so that, that you couldn't hurt them by, by touching them. But it gave you an enhanced experience because you were touching these things. And just the idea that you might want to experience this a little bit longer or whatever meant that they were pushing you through faster perhaps than I certainly than I wanted to go through and how do you deal with that so this is like going to a movie so it's a timed experience so there's nothing to linger over mm-hmm. you know there's you you have the this experience with the ask the farmer and then you have an experience um, with again trained staff in a room where you have more more 
to drink and you learn about the process of how it after the harvest it got to the glass and then there's a facilitated conversation you sit at community tables you have time to talk amongst yourself but you know that this entire experience is two hours long and that you know that's how long it is what we hope is that we can form relationships so that you would might want to keep speaking and so after you're in that tavern area of whatever spirit you're there to learn about, there is another room beyond that, another bar exclusively for visitors who have been through the museum so that they can then continue whatever conversation it is they're having. There's nothing to really linger over except maybe you want to keep a relationship. You just started a spark of you know, oh yes, we've been to the vineyards for that cognac in France. Oh, we have too. What happened? Oh, time's up. Okay, well then we can move into the next room and continue that conversation. Okay, okay. And so then if you become curious about the, the actor who is the farmer or whatever, and you have more questions, then you can just ask those questions later? Right, I, there would be a place um, online where if you had additional follow-up questions, there's enough time in, for a Q&A in, um, in the experience itself with the farmer, that's a really important part of it, that most questions should probably be answered. If you have something you'd like to comment on later, there will be um, a way to submit those questions and have them responded to. So will there be any actual artifacts? There will be a collections room if people, if there's something people want to donate, but it's not a collections oriented museum. So, and that of course, if it's just a collection of the oldest vessel apparently was, you know, I mean, I think the oldest museum was a Byzantine museum and maybe there was a vessel from there and that could go in a, you know, in the wall and, you know, we could set that up so you can see that, but it's not collections focused. So that would be the only place to like go and see something and whether or not we put them like in glass cases that divide rooms. So it's not really something, I mean, whether or not that's integrated into the architecture is an idea. We're mm -hmm. not, it's still in the developing stage. Yeah. Yeah. I, I went to a, a wine museum in Paris and found it very interesting to see what the equipment looked like, especially if you could look at modern day equipment versus that early equipment and whatever. Those are the kinds of things I'm thinking of. Well, I think, of course, the big buzzword in museums is relevance. How do we make this relevant no matter at what time frame it came from, how is it relevant to today? And so it's great to have all that old stuff, but you need to be able to say, and this is what it looks like today, or, mm -hmm. you know, or this doesn't exist anymore. And how is it relevant to us today and how we live now? I think it's really an important aspect to always be mindful of in development. How much of what you are interested in is, um coloring how you approach this. So just a minute about me and my background in tequila. Mm -hmm. So um, I, um, I'm the first American to get a distinctive OT from the Consuejo Regulador del Tequila. 
Now, back 10, 15 years ago, the CRT, as it's known, used to give diplomas to bars and restaurants in the United States, but they'd never given one to a person. So I went to Guadalajara and I planned out my own course and uh, received training from multiple catadores, which are uh, the Mexican version of a sommelier for tequila, and, uh, and then spent um, some time at the facility of the Consuejo Regulador del Tequila learning everything there is about the production and manufacturing of tequila. And when it was over, I said, okay, I would like some kind of acknowledgement that I have done all of this work. And they said to me, well, if you want that, you have to get on a plane and fly to Washington, D.C. and go to our um, trade office and go through another course of this. And I said, okay. And I got on a plane and I flew to Washington, D.C. and I went through a whole other section of this. And, um, and then they sent me a piece of paper. And now, they, now, t in today, 10 years later, whatever, they con the CRT contracts with tequila companies to do these couple hour, you know, courses, courses and they pass these piece of papers out like breath mints. But I want everybody to know I was your pioneer who went through weeks of, of research and information and study and contacts in order to have that piece of paper. So obviously I have a major passion for tequila. So, um, so anyway, that's, that is where the origination, so we need five more of me. So we have me and then we have five more. Now, since I've decided to do the museum of distilled spirits, I have become so much more interested in the other spirits and I am really looking forward to learning about them. And so did you find that you, your interest was in tequila was based mostly on the way it tasted and that that was what your initial attraction was to it? It was. I really, I grew up really liking tequila, which is actually a favorite of Americans in general is tequila. Um, the number one cocktail served in the United States is a margarita. Every time I go and look at a cocktail menu, if it lacks a margarita, I think, what is wrong with you? You are missing such an opportunity. <laughs> it doesn't matter if you have 10 other things. You should have a margarita on there because that's a sure seller. Right. So, and then I just came to love the culture of Mexico. I love the Mexican people. At Harvard, I took courses that were um, based in Mexican history. And that's one of the aspects that'll be integrated into the museum. The fascination also with tequila is that it's founded in Mesoamerican mythology. And um, the goddess Mayawell is the, um, uh, she, was a, she was a goddess, she was a fertility goddess, but then became known as the agave goddess. So it's the, fascinating stories about all all of the spirits yes so i want to thank you so much oh okay so i just wanted to say at the 
end of my conversation with you that um, the, why I want to create this Museum of Distilled okay. Spirits. Why is it important? Why do I want to do that? I mean, to begin with, two-thirds of the American public have a relationship with alcohol. So there, it's 100% with food, mm -hmm. but it's two-thirds with alcohol. Mm -hmm. And um, Colleen Dillon Schneider is the founder of Know Your Bone, which is a Shakespeare reference, which is a blog. She's a chief market engagement officer for Impacts, which oversees data statistics technology for engagement in, uh, initiatives in the cultural sector. And she says that by connecting people to people, people to places, and people to ideas, we transcend mere content and provide pathways to engagement. People, not artifacts alone, change the world. And that's what I want to do, Liz. I want to change the world. I want to bring everybody to the table, sit down together, have something delectable to eat while imbibing a fresh, innovative cocktail made with the finest distilled spirits and share and listen, really listen to one another and work to make our world a more joyful place. And with that, I thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue. We come to you from studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. Please come by when you are in New Orleans, and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Liz Williams.